Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to another edition of our Monday morning live devotionals uh, here on Facebook and also on the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. You can find wherever you get your podcasts these days. Uh, we are picking up here post Thanksgiving, uh, working through the book of Hebrews, which is a dense, rich book. Um, in fact, uh, I think outside of Romans, this is one that theologians throughout the ages have probably written the most uh, comprehensive commentary series on. I know John Owen has one that I think was 10 volumes on this book, um, and there's a lot going on, a lot of beautiful things, a lot that help us understand how we relate to the Old Testament and how God has fulfilled his promises through the Old Testament to us in Jesus Christ and also to his people, um, Israel, and how we are united together in Christ, heirs to the same promises by the same God. God, um, un, uh, looking at the same unfolding plan of salvation. And so uh, that's actually what we're going to be looking at today in Hebrews chapter 7. And Hebrews chapter 7, if you are um, a, a new Christian, you're just kind of reading your Bible for the first time, there's a lot in Hebrews 7 that perhaps you read it this morning or um, you're going to read it this afternoon and you read it and it's like, what is going on here? Who is this Melchizedek? Or, um, or maybe that's not even how you would have pronounced it when you read it. It's kind of like uh, when I read the Harry Potter series um, when I was in uh, college, I always called the the female uh, Hermione instead of Hermione. And when I heard that, my, my world shattered a little bit. Um, but yeah, we say it Melchizedek. And uh, he's a main character in Hebrews 7, and he's actually been a, a developing character in Hebrews uh, chapter 6 as or 5 and 6 as well. We've seen his name dropped in now in Hebrews 7. Um, what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's giving us kind of the theological background. So why this guy's significant, and I really want to encourage you, this is significant for you. What's being discussed here not only helps us understand the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament, the law and the gospel, which this is a huge passage for that, talking about Christ fulfilling the law, the nature of the law, um, that the law was given because a greater promise was assumed to come in Jesus Christ. Uh, but it, it's, it's after um, this deep and abiding hope, right? This comes after uh, a passage of text that is warning about falling away, about not, not hardening your heart, about not giving up the hope of Jesus Christ. And so it stands, uh, what's up for grabs in this text is eternal hope, um, security, and uh, confidence in all Christ is purporting to do for the believer in Jesus Christ. And so this is really important for us to consider. And we're going to do that today by looking in our three places, looking up, looking in, and looking out. And uh, I normally begin with a summary. I'm not going to summarize this too much because really there's two things that are going on. First, the author of Hebrews, like I said, is giving a theological background into the significance of who Melchizedek, king of Salem, is. And we see that in the very first uh, verse for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High, God met Abraham returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. And so we're going to see uh, who this Melchizedek is, what he did with Abraham, and why it's significant. And that's what we're going to see in um, kind of the first 20 verses of this passage. And then in verses 22 through the end, uh, that's where the author is peeling it back to press into us the good news of what is going on here and how this relates to Jesus and how this relates to you. So uh, when it comes to looking up, what does this passage teach us about God? One thing that is very clear in this text is that uh, God's plan is always to bring something bigger. 
Uh, God had this massive, wonderful plan for us in the Garden of Eden, um, and sin snuck in and uh, derailed that through Adam and Eve's disobedience. And that's not necessarily that it was outside of God's plan, but the perfect plan of God, God's people living in God's place under God's presence, kind of the three Ps that we think of when we think of God's covenant promise, um, it was... uh, disrupted, frustrated, and punted forward a little bit. But then what happens is you see what's called kind of the covenantal structure of scripture. And that's where every, um, so often in the Old Testament, God is creating a covenant, whether that covenant was with um, Adam in this creation mandate or Noah in this promise to not destroy the whole world for their sins again in a flood, or whether it was to Abraham in Genesis 12, or if it was to David um, in uh uh, first or second Samuel six, um, or the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. And that is what we see played out in the new Testament. And what these covenants are doing is, is each time God is narrowing his promise to his people as to what it will look like for God to redeem, to restore, and to bring the full blessing of his kingdom. And one thing that is really cool is that, um, this plan gets better at every step. It's better for us at every step. The more God fills in over history, and we don't know why he chose to do this, why it wasn't just that, you know, day three out of the garden, God caused this to rest- caused all of this to be restored. But we get hints. The New Testament tells us that um, God's goal was for this gospel, this gospel we have in Jesus Christ, this new covenant, to be proclaimed to the ends of the world, and then the end will come. And so part of the reason why we're here is that God desires more glory from people being brought out of slavery by the blood of his son. And he is so pleased when that happens. And that is why we are where we are. But what I want to look at here is in the context of Melchizedek is here we have a guy that kind of calls us to look back. So here we have it in a new covenant, um, New Testament text in Hebrews. And then it also we also actually interact with this under the Davidic covenant in Psalm 110. And we also interact with this under the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 14. There's kind of three significant places where Melchizedek is talked about and each of them kind of help us understand what God is doing um, to bring this promise of a great high priest to his people. And so what we see is in Genesis chapter 14, uh, Abraham goes and he rescues his relative Lot, um, whose family had been taken by some enemies. He goes and rescues them and he's coming back and he is met um, in Genesis uh, 14 verse 18, I think. He is met by um, this king we know nothing about. It says this, the king of Salem, who was priest of the most high God. And so here's the significance here. Melchizedek, who is this, this king and this priest. And we see in Hebrews that his name means, uh, the king of righteousness and also the king of Salem, which is the peace. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness and Salem means peace. And so he's both king of righteousness and king of peace. He is a good king, a really, really good king. In fact, we see that part of what makes him good as king and priest in Hebrews 7, I think in verse uh, 16, um, is this the power of this indestructible life. There's something uncanny about Melchizedek. And we don't know much about him, but that he was a real figure. He was this real king and this real priest. Um, some people think perhaps he was this um, kind of uh, uh, foreshadowing of Christ, maybe this uh, Christ kind of uh, this Christophany, this vision of Christ that happened in the Old Testament. But most likely he's just this king and this priest. But what's interesting is this is actually here in Genesis 14. This is the first time, um, at least translated in English, 
um, that the word priest is used. Melchizedek is the first priest we see in God's scripture. And what's important here is if you know about the Bible storyline, um, uh, Genesis 12 is where God promised that Abraham um, would be the one whom God would create his people through. So that's Genesis 12. At this point, there is no Moses, there's no Exodus, there's no law. The law hasn't come yet. Um, and so that means the regulations concerning the priesthood, as you read in Hebrews 7, the priests are going to come from the, the tribe of Levi, because that's what God is going to tell Moses the priests are going to come from. But the priestly office did not start in the law with the, the Levites. It started here with Melchizedek, who is king and priest. And Moses, uh, or Abraham in this text, treats Melchizedek as this priest of God the Most High, in that um, he gives the priest a tenth. He tithes to the priest a tenth of all that Abraham has, and the priest blesses Abraham. And so uh, we know no, this is kind of the only interjection Melchizedek has in this Old Testament storyline before the law came, before the priesthood was defined. Um, and yet there's this king priest who is good and excellent and righteous. Um, and then what happens is uh, we see the law where the priests are prescribed through the tribe of Levi. But what we see is that those, that's actually a throwback to Melchizedek. We don't know anything about Melchizedek's lineage, but what we do know is priests do come from Israel and their model, their type, um, their mold is this Melchizedek character we met in Genesis 14. So God introduced this Levitical priesthood that if you were born in the tribe of Levi, um, you were eligible to serve in the priestly role and there was qualification processes you had to go to do that. But then we get to Psalm 110, and David now is the king on God's throne under the Davidic covenant, and in uh, David is not from the tribe of Levi. He's from the tribe of Judah, and so too will Jesus Christ be from the tribe of Judah, not from the tribe of Levi. But in Psalm 110, God is talking to David, and he says, um, he says you, David, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He says, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In other words, God in giving us Melchizedek and God in giving us Psalm 110 shows that even though there's this tribe of Levites that should produce priests, God was always foreshadowing um, a priest that would come apart from the tribe of Levi, a priest that would come apart from the law, a priest that would be chosen by God. That is not a sign that God is changing his mind, but a sign that God chooses all of his priests. And so this is called typology in scripture. It's Monday morning. We're doing our devotions. You don't need to know what typology means. But basically it means that we see um, little glimpses, little types, and they're progressing to the anti-type, the fullness of it. In other words, you see this seed that begins to grow and grow and grow until you get to the fruit. And the seed of priests starts with Melchizedek. It grows through the priesthood. You see it with David. Um, you see it in the bad priests that are in Israel um, in a negative sense. But then you see it in Jesus, this priest who comes, who like Melchizedek, is not from the tribe of Levi, but like Melchizedek, is appointed a priest by God. And one thing that's important that the, the author of Hebrews talks about is this, this priest of Melchizedek. Um, we don't know his lineage. It doesn't say anything about his lineage. That's odd. If you've read, read Genesis, Genesis loves lineages. If there's time to include lineage, they're going to do it. Moses wants you to know the lineage, but there's no lineage of Melchizedek. And the point is, is that they don't know the beginning or the end of Melchizedek's priesthood. He is a priest forever. 
And so when Christ comes in the line of Melchizedek, the eternal son of God, he is a high priest forever. He has no beginning and he has no end. And this is where we see Hebrews 1 says, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to us through his prophets, but now he has spoken to us through his son. God through all of history has been progressing to Jesus Christ, who is king and priest of his people. King in the order of David, priest in the order of Melchizedek, and good for all of God's people. And what's astounding is when we look at God's promises in scripture, every time he gives us that promise, I said this earlier, it gets better for us. It gets more clear for us. The the, the one who secures the promise uh, provides to us as God's covenant people something better. And just as Jesus's promise is a better promise um, than what we had in Moses, that's what we've been looking at in Hebrews, um, that is good for us. But that also leads us to remember that God's promises for us in the new heavens and the new earth are also better. The best days for the Christian are the days that are ahead of us. And that doesn't mean that this life will become a utopia, but it means that the promises of God will always prove to be better and better and better as we have the privilege of trusting in them with our hope that Jesus is our high priest to take care of our sin. And so what do we see when we look up at God? There's a lot of context here, but the big point is, is that God has meticulously been working for our good in the Bible by sending Jesus to be the priest who meets our needs. And this is where we need to look in because maybe you're like, well, um, why is this priest thing good for me, right? We live in America. There's not a lot of priests, specifically in the Protestant church. We don't use this priestly language anymore. Um, but this really is a big deal. And in fact, if you look back in Hebrews chapter 6, um, the hope for this priest office that we have in Jesus is made clear in chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What is the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul? A hope that enters into the place behind the curtain. So it's using this priestly language. The priest would go behind the curtain and they would stand before God as representatives of their people. Um, Where Jesus has gone, this is verse 20, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so what's at stake for you in this text is um, eternal hope. Hope in your, excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Maybe I won't. Jinx, stop. Um, this, this, it came to pass. The sneeze has passed. Um, we have this hope that is the anchor of our soul if we would understand the, the priestly role Jesus plays on our behalf, the high priestly role, the chief priestly role. And why do we need a priest like this? Well, priests were representatives of their people who actually accomplished things. And in our culture, um, we don't have a lot of things to look at. Maybe you grew up in uh, a... Uh, another church or ecumenical background that had priests and that idea is maybe a little closer to what you're familiar with. Um, but I think perhaps the, the thing that is most familiar to us is actually politically. Um, in a democratic republic, our elected uh, officials are representatives of us. We are um, selecting them to represent us before the the systems of government that are in place, but for the legislation that would come past and the rulings that would be put in place, they are to represent us. And so when we're looking at elections, which I'm not sure if you're aware, we just had one, um, we are thinking through who is it that is a good representative? Who is it who embodies what I believe and not only embodies what I believe, but can actually act out of that surplus? And sometimes we're debated because maybe people um, are really fine people, but they are bad in terms of their role or they're people who play a good role, but perhaps they are less good in terms of morality. And it's always this fuddled, muddled mess of 
who is the one who's able to do something, but who's actually the one who is actually a good representative of myself. And even if you find that good person every four years, there's that risk of having that person removed. And so it is with the priestly office. The priestly office was our representative before God in scripture. And what did the priests do? Well, they did three primary things that I could think of this morning. Um, there's probably better work to be done on it. Uh, but uh, these are just the three top things I thought of. First is they, they were to declare people clean from their physical maladies. So if someone had a leprosy or any, another disease, it was um, the, the individual would go to the priests and the priests would examine them and they would declare them clean so they could re-enter society. And so the priests um, allowed people to be freed to even enter into a physical society again. Um, the priests also accept, accepted sacrifices from the people for their spiritual errors. And so when people sinned or when people were just in the habit of offering these sacrifices for um, intentional or unintentional sins, it was the priest that would accept it and say, this is an acceptable sacrifice um, to cover uh, what it is you've done. And so the priest provided a covering, not just for physical maladies, but for spiritual ones. But then beyond that, the priest would also, um, once a year, the high priest would actually go before the presence of God himself and intercede for the whole corporate people of God. And this was a dangerous prospect because if that priest was not pure, if that priest had not covered his own sins with his own sacrifices, then that priest would enter into the presence of God and like a bug into a bug zapper, his sin would consume him in the presence of God's holy righteousness. And so we see these priests, they provided uh, they provided relief for physical maladies, for spiritual maladies, but then this representative relationship in the presence of God where you could not draw near to God, the priest would draw near to God for you. And this is where we see um, the, the desires that are in our hearts, the desires to be made clean, the desires to be promised um, healing, the desires to draw near to God. If you have those desires, you need a high priest. And you need a priest who is not going to die every four years or die at the end of his lifetime. You need a priest who is a priest forever so that you have confidence to draw near to God. And Jesus is this great high priest who is eternal as God's eternal son, who has come to declare us clean and promise us final future resurrection where all of our diseases are cleansed. Jesus is our great high priest who comes and doesn't accept a sacrifice that we offer to him, but he offers himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus accepts the role of becoming the acceptable sacrifice as our true high priest. But more than that, Jesus is now the one who draws us into the presence of God, not as we stand apart in a separate court, which is what had to happen in the, the Old Testament temple system. But as we are wed to Christ, as we live in Christ, we draw near to God in Christ, but also God draws near to us in Christ. We are brought into the presence of God. This is the sure and steady anchor of the Christian hope that Christ has done it all. And I could say a lot more, but the author of Hebrews says it better and listen to the language listen to the hope that is for you in jesus christ um, in this it says G this makes jesus the guarantor of a better covenant and so he's talking about jesus in the order of melchizedek jesus the eternal high priest jesus the priest forever is the guarantor of a covenant i used this yesterday in our sermon at church but here it is saying that whatever you might draw from the promise of god whatever comfort whatever hope whatever anchor whatever um Relief there is, it must come through Jesus, and Jesus is the sufficient pledge to give you all of this. Why? Why can you trust in Jesus? 
Well, the author continues, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing office. In other words, Jesus is a great high priest because all the other high priests died. None of them could, they, they couldn't beat their own problem of sin. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once when he offered up himself. For the, the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So Jesus is king, priest, and son who brings us to God. He is able to save you to the uttermost. When you think of your separation from God, when you think of the sins that have severed the relationship with God, when you think of your weakness, which reminds you that you are not God, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to save permanently, effectually, effectually comprehensively, all who draw near through him. Jesus is what gets us to God. And that is our immense hope today. And so in closing, there's two things that we want to do when we look out. So how does this text change the way we live? Well, the first thing is that we draw near. We draw near to God through Jesus. And this looks like salvation, coming to Jesus, repenting, um, believing in him for the first time. But this also looks like drawing near to God through Jesus Christ daily. In fact, this is what um, uh, we see later on in Hebrews, where it says, therefore, since we have such a high priest, we should draw near to God with this assurance. And so we have sins in our life. We have issues in our life that make us, that remind us of a separation that Christ has bridged. But because we have this high priest who, as we saw in Hebrews 7, sympathizes with us, knows us, loves us, we don't go off in the corner and play with our sin and try to fix it and cover it up so that we can go to God. Instead, we humbly go to this high priest who is able to love us and to deal with our sins so that we might come back to God. It is some sort of uh, gross uh, Christian reflex that only grace can break where we do not have as our first desire. And I mean this comprehensively. We don't have as our first desire to take our sins to Christ. We want to take our sins into our, our chamber of legalism and we want to try to dress it up. We want to try to explain it away. We want to try to excuse it so that we might approach God on our own. Maybe we don't need a high priest. If we're sinless, we could go to God on our own, but we are not sinless. But we have a priest who's promised to do something about our sin. And so this morning, maybe you're someone who you've been wrestling in the corner trying to get entrance into the presence of God by your own merits. But this is the benefit of this great high priest, this high priest who loves you, this high priest who can take care of your sins, is you draw near to God by running to Christ and letting him carry you the gap that your works and, and your um, performance could never get. And you enjoy the pleasure that comes from knowing that Jesus has saved you from sin. So the first thing we do when we look out is we draw near to God daily through Jesus Christ. The second thing we do is we see in 1 Peter that the Apostle Peter speaks to the church 
um, and it's using a lot of this priestly language, saying that the church is this new temple built together on holy stones. And then he says, uh, you are now, you believers, you have been saved by faith. You are a priesthood of believers. You are a holy priesthood. And so just as Jesus is one who is able to draw others to God and serve others out of his surplus, we now get to do that. Now, there's a difference. Uh, we uh, are not Jesus in terms of we can never make a sacrifice that saves anyone from their sins. Only Jesus can. But as a nation of priests, what we are able to do is to call others to this God who forgives and to go to them in their weakness and to promise that there is a way forward. And so this is where we see care inside of the church. And so we see evangelism outside of the church because Christ has cared for us, because Christ has sympathized with us, because Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant with us. We can go out with all of that um, surplus of, of blessing and wealth and promise, and we can call others to the well of grace as well. We can become priests serving God, attending to the temple, which is the church and calling others to enjoy his beauty. So let's do that this week. And let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near. Lord, we cannot understand how much better your promise has gotten through, through your word as we see the way in which each covenant brings us closer and closer to the reality that comes in the new heavens and new earth that is for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you that you are a priest who knows us, who knows our weaknesses, who knows our sins, and yet was willing to offer yourself for us. So Jesus, we pray that you help us to live out this calling of drawing near to you daily and serving as a priest in your church. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Have a good week. We will see you next Monday. And Bible reading groups are up and running again after taking last week off for Thanksgiving. See you guys later.